0: before we have our, our talk, uh, you'll notice on your uh, notice, uh, news sheets, um, there's a blue tearaway slip, and there's an opportunity there to ask questions, to ask for prayer points, uh, and different things like that. Um, the blue, I had a blue slip question last week about the passage that we looked at, and it was asking the question, in chapter 5, uh, does the phrase every creature under the earth refer to those who have been lost? So it's talking there about uh, verse 13 of chapter 5, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. I want to say, does that refer to then um, the lost? Probably not, actually, in that passage. So in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 4 and 5, uh, under the earth is just another way of referring to the sea. Uh, If you read those passages, it's sort of expanded that way. We call it the depths. It's that sort of idea. So really, by saying it, he's covering all his bases. You do then have the phrase, in the sea, but check this out, literally the phrase is on the sea. So it's as though everything that's in the sea, everything that's on the sea, everything that's in the sky, everything that's on the earth, everything. Philippians 2.10 does have a similar, though not identical, phrase that could refer to the dead. Um, but it's certainly true there that there, they're bowing their knee to King Jesus. So in a sense they, they will praise, but what you might call in a reluctant or regretful way. Uh, Psalm 115 verse 17 though says, The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any of you go down into silence. So it's not saying that they're going to be converted, it's not saying that they're eventually going to become Christians uh, when they're dead, but there is a sense in which they will bow the knee uh, to King Jesus. They will recognise. Uh, that he is king. So I hope that that's helpful. If you've got any comeback on that, do please feel free to fill in another uh, slip or come and have a word with me uh, afterwards. But on to our, our passage this morning, uh, let me just pray as we come to God's word. Uh, Father, thank you uh, for your word. Father, thank you that although some things are hard to understand, Father, thank you that it's there for our encouragement. It's there to build us up. And Father, pray that we might be built up this morning <clears throat> And encouraged in the gospel. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Sometimes the biggest question is not what, but when. The biggest question is not always what, but when. The ideas placed before us in Revelation chapter six are not difficult in themselves. What we're going to look at with the imagery is fairly clear. So much so that the characters that are in our account this morning, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, have passed into popular imagination. You hear about them, people talk about them. They were even mentioned in the news this week at one point. So we understand a little bit about what it's talking about. The question is not so much what, but when. When are we talking about here? Is it some point off in the future? Is it something that happened in the past, or is it something that's happening now? And that's one of the big questions as we go through the book of Revelation, that's one of the big questions that we started with. And I should say, historically, all three views are well represented. There's good people on all those different sides. In the church, down through the ages, there's never been a solid consensus on this. So I should say from the get-go, you may legitimately disagree with me this morning uh, as we go through, with some aspects as we go through. But let me also say, if you do, firstly, let's be civil about it. Let's not fall out about it. But then secondly, if you think that I'm not right, come and show me it and try and show me it from the text. We're just going to carefully try and go through this morning. We should see that the events described here are describing the time that I'm talking about. We'll see as we we go through. This morning, I'm going to suggest that the period that we look at here is from just before John's time until the end. So from Jesus' resurrection and ascension to his return. Not in a chronological way, that sort of goes event after event after event after event, but describing in general terms the time in which we live now. Now, firstly, let me show you from Revelation why I think this is the case. We said last week that prophecies made far into the future were sealed in the Bible. So we mentioned this last time, Daniel 8, verse 26. Seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. That's what Daniel was told. And Daniel 12, verse 4. Shut up the words and seal the book until the end of time. So, prophecies in the Old Testament that were to do with far in the future were to be sealed. But in John, the opposite is true. So, Revelation 22, verse 10, and he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. He's saying this is not a long way off. Actually, this is coming now. This is near. In other words, the end is here. No need to seal up this prophecy. The time described here is on its way now. If you're not convinced from that, let me show you from elsewhere. So Acts chapter two verse seventeen, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall see shall dream dreams. What's being described there uh, is not. Judgment Day so much, it's Pentecost. That is Peter explaining Joel, the book of Joel, as understanding as as explaining the events of Pentecost. But he calls it the last days. These are the last days in which these things happen. Paul says the same thing in 2 Timothy. So in his last letter to Timothy he writes, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving goods, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having an appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. That's 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 5. Now apart from the fact that that could be a guide to our times, couldn't it? As you be through that list. Paul says that it's the last days these things happen. And then he tells Timothy to avoid them. And it's a singular command. So in other words, it's to Timothy. If these people belong to the last days and that's far off in the future, how can Timothy avoid them? Unless Timothy was already living in the last days. Starts 2 Timothy, not 1 Timothy. If you don't believe all that, just look around you. I've been having conversations with people for about the last 20 years, uh, telling me that we're living in the last days. And again, all the way through history, people have thought the same. No one has seriously thought that Judgment Day is really far off in the future, because they've looked around at the world around them, and what they've seen as fitted with what the Bible speaks about as being the last days. Now people who've said that to me normally mean something quite specific. They normally mean something like the last seven years of history. But biblically we are in the last days. That's why it's always been for the last 20 years people have been telling me that. The last days are the days from Jesus' death and resurrection all the way up to his return. And that's what we have described Here. And what we're going to see if we go through the book of Revelation is that same period from then until the end, described in all sorts of different ways. Just as we've seen Jesus as the glorious Son of Man in chapter 1, and then as the Lamb in chapter 5, so we're going to see this age, the church age if you like, in seven seals, in seven trumpets, in seven bowls. They're not sequential periods of history either past or future, but they're ways of looking at the same time from different angles. It's a bit like a spiral staircase. John really likes this idea of sorts. If you read one John, he just keeps going around the same ideas, around and around. And that's what he's doing here, he's going around and around this spiral staircase, showing us things from different angles. The same events, the same people, the same ideas, but from different perspectives. So in our passage then, if we take that as how we're going to read it, Jesus steps forth to break open the seals, to reveal and enact God's plan for history. And the first four seals that we see, those were our seven seals we saw last time, the first four are going to be broken off, and they're more commonly known as the four horsemen. The four horsemen. Let me just read to you uh, verse one again. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures with a loud voice like thunder say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. It repeats that idea with four different horsemen, and it's probably one of the most famous figures in the whole book of Revelation, the four horsemen of the Apocalypse. Now, really, it should be the Four Horsemen of Zechariah, because actually, if you read Zechariah, that's where they come from. If you want to know more about the Four Horsemen of Zechariah, go speak to Steve another week, because he preached in it uh, a couple of months ago, or go out and listen online. The Four Horsemen are traditionally known as conquest, war, famine, and death, or plague. That's what they're sort of known as through history. The first one is a conqueror. He looks a bit like Christ the conqueror, the one who conquers. But he's a fake. The victory that he brings is military and earthly. He brings death to the world, not life with his conquering. He has a real bow in his hand rather than a rainbow. He's an earthly empire builder. That's the first one. The second one is war. He's a warmonger. Seemingly turning nation upon nation. So it's not that there are big empires, just big egos. The pointless squabbles between nations and kings that result in their own people paying the price. The third is an exploitative salesman. If <laughs> You read the uh, account. He's offering the basics at 18 to 20 times their normal price. Usually that's the result of a famine, hence his name. Olive oil and wine are okay, sometimes taken in luxury goods. In other words, the poor are affected more than the rich. That's certainly true of famine, but it seems more likely that the idea is that there's no relief coming. An emperor, uh, around the time that this was written, the Book of Revelation, uh, ordered that vineyards and olive groves in the area of Asia Minor be ripped out and replaced with wheat fields. And the idea was there was a bit of a famine, they wanted to alleviate the famine, so they replaced the olive oil and the uh, wine with grain. Interestingly, the locals refused, uh, and the famine continued. They didn't want to get rid of their wine and olive oil. So no relief is coming. The fourth horseman is death or plague. The word for death here is used for plagues in the Greek Old Testament, and the horse sort of looks at, pain, at that pale sickly colour, that's really the idea, it's not... Uh, sort of greeny, sort of off colour. And death and Hades follow this one. So these are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Though as we say that, the word apocalypse is just the word revelation. That's actually the first word in the book, which is how books were given their names in those days. Apocalypse just means something that's revealed, Though now because we associate it with the end, because of how people understand the book. But there's nothing to indicate that these horsemen only belong to the last decade of history. In fact, show me um, a date or a time in the (coughs) last two millennia where these four horsemen haven't been around. So take the 1900s, the 20th century. Conqueror, we've got Hitler trying to take over the world. We've got war, two world wars, Korea, Vietnam, Cold War. In fact, it was the bloodiest century in history. We had famine in Ethiopia, famine in Russia, two famines in China, I discovered this week, that killed an estimated 80 million people in the last century. Four million people died in floods in China in one flood in 1931. So there is death and plague and disaster. Or go back to the 1200s, the 13th century. Conqueror, Genghis Khan, tries to take over the world. There's wars in Spain, Sweden, Scotland, Crusades in the Middle East, in Egypt, Italy, Japan, England, 20,000 die in London of starvation alone. <laughs> Two storms, 60 years apart, kill 140,000 people in Germany. Mount Somalis in Indonesia erupts, killing tens of thousands of people. All the 8th century, the new united tribes in Arabia try and take over the world. They manage all the way from India to North Africa to Spain, all the way up to nearly where I lived in France, nearly up to Paris. So they try and take over, then Charlemagne has a go, then the Vikings have a go that century. There's war everywhere. There's famines in France, Spain, and across Europe. The rest of the world, we don't have records. And two million died in an outbreak of smallpox in Japan. It happens all the way through history. We'll take it right back to John's day, first century. The Roman Empire was trying to take over the world. There's wars in Europe, Britain, China, Afghanistan, Israel. There's famine in Israel and the near east, it's recorded in the Bible. Thousands die in Italy as Mount Vesuvius erupts. The four horsemen are there all the way through history, and they're here now. They've been there since John's day until now. We live in a sheltered part of the world, in a sheltered time in history. We moan that our petrol prices have gone up. And don't get me wrong, they are going up, aren't they, and our energy bills... But it's hardly unprecedented in history, is it? We're shocked when we hear about people um, trying to take over other countries, which has been in the news a lot recently. But there are other world leaders that have been having to go all the way through history, aren't they? It's sort of saying conquerors are going to conquer, warmongers are going to warmonger, exploiters going to exploit, people going to die. These are common features of our time. And we should expect that, shouldn't we? Even from the words of Jesus. So Matthew 24, verses 6 to 8. And you will hear wars and rumours of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. But these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So you saying that's not The end. These things are to be expected. It's not the end itself. This is just the time that we live in. The shock really in our passage isn't that these things are happening. We sort of expect them now, don't we? But what's causing them to happen? It's the Lamb opening the seals that brings this about. Which means that this is under his authority as these things happen. It's as though he sort of put an alarm clock In the world to wake us up to our desperate state. These things are supposed to shock us. If the beauty of the natural order is to call us to faith, then the brokenness of the natural order is to call us to repentance. When these terrible things happen in the world, they are not out of control, but they are part of God's plan to bring us wayward people to repentance. Repentance. And that should both humble us and encourage us when things are difficult. It should humble us because God is much bigger than we think he is. His ways are not our ways. God is not at our mercy and he's not at the mercy of the things that are happening. But it should encourage us as well. Not that these are nice or pleasant things, but at least they have some sort of purpose in God's plan. Surely the bigger tragedy would be the atheist position that these disasters happen with no good purpose or design. <coughs> what comfort is there in that? Or the nice sounding position that these things are outside of God's control. Except that, that would mean that God would be powerless to stop them. More likely we're supposed to see in these things echoes of the plagues in Egypt, which God uses for a purpose. So the four horsemen are not a future sign, but a present sign of God's wrath, His anger at sin. The brokenness of our world is a reminder of the brokenness of our world's relationship with God. But do you notice right at the end, they're only given control, they're only given power over a quarter of the world. So in verse 8, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth. The kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and with wild beasts of the earth. Judgment here is limited. A quarter. It's felt across the globe, but it's not the ultimate judgment. It's not the end. All things are caught up in the brokenness. But it's it's under control. It's on a leash, if you like. But everybody sees it in the world around. Even God's people are affected by these sufferings too. In fact, they suffer in different ways too, as we see in our next points. The second thing we see is an incomplete number of martyrs. Let me read to you 9 and 10 again. And he opened the fifth seal, and I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were given a white robe, and told to rest a little longer, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves have been. It's interesting that in Jesus' discussion of the things to come, in Matthew 24, which we read before, the next thing he says is, Then they will deliver you up for tribulation, and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. The fifth seal focuses on this. The focus moves back from, uh, from uh, back from uh, back from Earth to Heaven. What is going on in Heaven while all this suffering and trouble is going on on Earth? Well, those who have died for their faith cry out for justice. The martyrs in Heaven call out for Judgment Day. They're pictured there as under the altar. This is another reminder that heaven here is pictured like the temple, with an altar in it. The temple, after all, is supposed to be a reflection of heavenly realities. The altar in the temple was the place of sacrifice. And here are people who have laid down their lives in service to their Lord. Here are believers who have truly followed Jesus, even to death on a cross, if you like. Who were persecuted for their faith and paid the ultimate price. Now in Leviticus we read that the the blood of the sacrifices after it was used on the altar was poured out under the altar. And here they are, under the altar. And to this day there are thousands of people who join them. There are thousands of people who are martyred. Open Doors, a charity that looks into this, has the numbers between roughly three and 4,000 Christians martyred every year. The exact number may be much, much higher though. The exact number is hotly disputed, but a few years ago, uh, a Christian researcher, historian, called David Barrett, put the number at roughly 70 million Christian martyrs since the time of Christ. 70 million, that's basically the population of the UK. And here they cry out, Oh Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They're calling out for justice. They're calling out for judgment, for a reckoning. And in terms of what's actually going on there, that's fairly easy to understand, isn't it? But I confess that i found it quite hard to get my head around. It feels a bit to me like those Psalms where it's sort of asking God to break people's teeth. You know the ones that I mean? It's actually very similar words to Psalm 74. How long, O Lord, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. That's what they're saying. But in my head, that's not what I want them to be saying. You know what I mean? I want them to be calling out for mercy for their persecutors. I want them to be crying out, Father, please forgive them. But whenever that happens in scripture, that's an opportunity for me to learn more about God and about myself. Because if something's not right, then it's something that's not right in my head rather than in the Bible. And if it means that I'm not expecting this, there's something that I've not got quite right. Perhaps it's a misunderstanding of who God is, or maybe heaven as a present reality is, or or maybe I don't understand what they're calling out for. I suspect, though, it's the same problem that we might have with that phrase in verse 16, the wrath of the Lamb. We struggle to get our heads around that. Isn't Jesus meek and mild? They're obviously not calling out for revenge. That is not what they're calling out for. What they're calling out for is justice from the just God. And God is already going to do this, notice. Actually, judgment is coming. God has promised that judgment is coming. Their question is, how much longer? It's the heavenly equivalent of the kids on that car journey. Are we nearly there again? Are we nearly there yet, crying out through history. They want their blood to be avenged. It's an echo of another psalm that asks that same question. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nation before our eyes. They want the nations to know that God is real and that he really does care for his people. They want the world to know that God really loved them and that they had done nothing wrong that was deserving of death. That vindication won't come, though, until God judges the world. And they cry out for that day when all the wrongs will be righted. When those who oppose God and his people will be seen for who they were and judged. How long? That's the question. What's the answer? Not until their number is complete. What is it that we're waiting for before the world ends? Is it a new temple? No. Is it the evangelisation of every people group? Well, I can see that, though Paul does make statements about uh, the gospel has been proclaimed to all creatures under heaven. In Romans 16, he writes that the mystery has been made known to all the nations. So we it's, it's already got that sort of idea. I don't say that to discourage world mission, but simply to explain that if the world ended tomorrow and seemingly not every nation was reached, it doesn't mean that God has tricked us. What we're waiting for, according to the voice here, is the last martyr. It would seem here that God knows every single last person who will die for their testimony of Jesus. And when that last one dies, he will call time on history as we know it. He will bring in judgment and finally avenge the blood of all. In the meanwhile, though, they're given a white robe and told to wait a little bit longer. The white robe was given to those who conquer back in chapter 2. And they're just told to wait a little while longer. It's like what we say to the kids in the car, isn't it? a little while longer until we get there. That was the fifth seal. And that might be tricky, but I think actually the trickiest one is the sixth seal. Because in it, the world appears to end. So that's verses 12 to 17. Let me just read to you 12 and 13. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth, as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Now, the imagery in verses 12 to 14 is taken from various Old Testament passages. I haven't got time to read them, because actually there's Isaiah 13. Isaiah 24, Isaiah 34, Jeremiah 4, Ezekiel 32, Joel 2 and 3, Amos 8 and Habakkuk 3. If you want those afterwards, I'll, I'll give you something you can go and look them up. But the picture here is basically the cosmos falling apart. Creation is being undone at that great and awesome day. I tried to sort of see how it was sort of going on. You've got the earthquake. You've got the sun disappearing. You've got the moon turning to blood. You've got the stars falling from the sky. That is the picture that we're given here. Everything is being undone. It's almost unmistakably the end. And the people know it too. They call for the rocks to fall on them. A picture from Hosea 10. It's the end. In fact, even the ground goes, doesn't it? The, the islands and the mountains disappear. The sky just all look like a scroll. But we're only in chapter 6 of Revelation. There are 18 chapters, no there are not, that's not right is it? There are 16 chapters left to go. Shouldn't have got my son come to sing on me with mass. 16 chapters left to go. And what we're going to see is these same things repeated. We're going to see several ends in the book of Revelation. So let's do this from the last trumpet from chapter 11, 11-15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, and said, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Speaking of the end, all this from chapter 16, verse 17, the final bowl of wrath. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came from the temple, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as had never been seen on the earth. So great was the earthquake that the great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the Great to make it drain the cup of wine of the fury of his rock, and every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. Well, we, we sort of have that, haven't we? The book is a bit like Groundhog Day, if you've ever seen that film. It's the guy who wakes up every morning, it's the alarm clock, and he just lives the same day over and over again. It's like the world resets, everything goes back and we start again from another angle, from the next level up on the spiral staircase. First we see God's judgment of seven seals um, that are broken, revealing and unfolding God's plan for the world, that's the image of the scroll. Then as trumpets. The judgment is seen as trumpets that are blown, warning of the end. Then as bowls of God's wrath being poured out in judgment on mankind. With the six seals here, though, the, 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 the sort of angle of it is that there are six categories of people. All humanity is being judged. Six categories are given in verse 15. Let me read that to you. Then the kings of the earth, the great ones, and the generals and the rich and the powerful, and everyone, and slave and free. Hang on. (laughs) What did I do wrong? There are six categories. Kings of the Earth, great ones. Generals, rich, powerful, everyone, slave, slave and free. I'm gonna go back and check that out, (laughs) actually. But it's the whole of humanity that's involved here. It's got everyone, but then even to make the point, it goes on with the different uh, things. It might be six pairs, that might be what I was thinking. But uh, the idea there is that all of humanity, all the way through history, has not learned anything since the days of Adam. Everyone there is hiding. Because what does humanity do? It attempts to hide under the rocks. Here we are at the end of history, doing exactly the same as our forefathers did in the Garden of Eden. In the face of sin and of God's judgment on it, Instead of running to God for forgiveness, we run from God. The image is from Hosea 10, where God is pronouncing judgment on the northern kingdom of Israel. In their shame and their idolatry, they call for their hills to cover them. Again, a reminder of the garden where they sought to cover themselves with fig leaves. And again, instead of calling out to God, they try and cover their own shame. They call inanimate objects to come and cover them. Rocks to hide their shame. This is a picture of the end, isn't it? They know what's happening. But this also happens in the run-up, doesn't it? As human beings, we, we haven't learned anything all the way through. As human beings, we still seek to hide from God when we sin, rather than run to God for forgiveness. I've known so many people who've messed up morally, and it's sent them fleeing from God, rather than fleeing to God for refuge. Also, as human beings, we seek to cover our shame, don't we, with things that are ultimately destructive to ourselves. Some turn to chemical relief or sexual relief or distraction, but none of them provide the covering that we need. Some people turn to moralism, trying to cover themselves with morals, but they're no better than fig leaves. None of us, none of those things can cover our shame, nor can they protect us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. Or the wrath of the Lamb. Only the Lamb can do that. But here it's the wrath of the Lamb. What a phrase. Almost sounds like a contradiction in terms to say the wrath of the Lamb. Yet there it is. Wrath, anger at sin is not just from the Father but from the Son too. And incidentally from the Spirit as you see with Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. Theologically I'm glad that it's there. It stops us from falling into the trap of thinking God has three different personalities in competition with each other. You know, the angry one and the kind one and the holy one. No, all three are all three. They share the same character. It's their relation to each other and their actions in history that differ. But all of them have the same reaction to sin, rebellion, evil. So theologically I'm glad that it's there, but practically I'm sad that it's there. Because we're left with that question, aren't we, dangling at the end? Who can stand? And the deafening answer in one sense is no one. No one can stand before the wrath of the Lamb, before the Almighty. No one is worthy in all of creation as we saw last time. And yet, some will stand on that day as we'll see next time. The answer is to turn now. Because the good news of this passage is that we're not at that day yet. We're not at the end. We're not at the day of the wrath of the Lamb. When are we? That's the question we started with, wasn't it? We're in the day of salvation. We're in the time when we can turn. We're in the time when we can be washed by the blood of the Lamb instead of facing his wrath. So turn to the Lamb now. That's the message, isn't it? Repent and believe while there's still time. And if you have done, who are you going to tell about those things? Who will stand before the wrath of the Lamb? Let's make sure that we've given them a chance by telling them the message. Amen.